Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Hello, I'm Jenna Thompson, and this is 3CR Community Radio on 855 on your dial. And this is Radical Philosophy. That's philosophy for everyone. Of course men play roles, but women play roles too blanker ones. They have, in the play of life, fewer good lines. Iris Murdoch, The Black Prince, 1973. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And last week, we had part one of our interview with Therese, Dr. Teresa Handel on gender selection. And this week, we have Part two. And I'm speaking to Teresa Hindle, who is a Doctor of Philosophy. Welcome to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. There are some people that have argued that the one child policy in China has been quite harmful because men aren't able to find wives or men's parents aren't becoming grandparents because their sons aren't able to find wives and to go on to have children. I think that's quite an issue in China. However, I think that we also need to make sure that first and foremost we recognise the harm to women in, in such a context, the fact that when girls are not considered valuable enough to be born and and brought up, that is the biggest harm in, in sex selection based on strong gender preference. It's not the harm to men that they won't have available wives because women are first and almost individuals and autonomous human beings. So it is harm to them that they are not allowed to exist. I kind of... I read this argument a lot that, you know, poor men who won't find wives, but women are not wives or available partners for men. Women are people, and we need to let them exist, and we need to value their life as much as we value anyone else's life. Um, and China China is in a fair bit of trouble because also the fact that there was one-child policy for so long means that this the population is rapidly aging and this will create a lot of socioeconomic issues and there are a whole lot of other problems. Basically, the, the lack of women in Chinese society um, also stemmed a lot of debates and security studies because when you have so many men, some call it surplus men, it's, it's quite a horrible term, 
there's a worry that you know this might actually lead into a military conflict because it's quite a traditional society and it is assumed that men will grow up and they will marry and have children and you know this is what their life will be like so if this is not available then what is the plan b and yeah there are theorists who are quite worried about uh, a possible militarization of a society where there are so many more men than women. I have heard there's been quite a few cases of wife sharing because there's not enough women to go mm. around and, and also their uh, Chinese men are, are looking at other other countries and bringing women in as well and it's sort of almost like mm-hmm. a making slaves, sex slaves of the women. Yeah, I, I traveled to India a few years back and I had an opportunity to talk to a lot of absolutely amazing Indian feminists and academics and some of them told me about uh, villages where there are barely any women and when while I was in India one of uh, one of um, one girl in in one of the this, these regions she was forced to marry five brothers because there were no other women in in the village and it's just really quite scary when when you think about the impact on on women's lives and there is there are problems with violence against women and domestic violence and basically when so many women are missing this reinforces women's oppression because women are considered wives and and potential mothers of children and not treated as individuals who can actually make decisions about their life and they're barely basically treated like like property which is something that should really worry us (laughs) ah yeah it certainly should i've also heard that in china uh, people who have daughters, uh, their daughter has access to better education and doesn't doesn't sort of have to have a, a male sort of sibling to compete with. So they tend to have fairly highly educated women in China as well. And I think that the higher, uh, statistics have shown that the higher level of education people have, the less children they have. And... You know, so, I mean, probably there's lots of women who are choosing not to have children and not to get married. Definitely, and I think that it's quite, it's it's a complex issue because it really, it depends where you are. And it also differs very much both in China and India. <clears throat> you will get different results in, in rural and urban areas. And you will get different results and problems in different states. For example, India is really interesting because there are states where sex selection is an issue and states with skewed ratios and then states that have no problems at all. And it's quite intriguing what what actually makes the difference. And it's quite hard to get one's head around it because it doesn't, completely relate to women's education. It's not about economy and wealth because both 
wealthy and poor states have issues with with skewed ratios. So it's not about it. It's not about religion. <laughs> so I've I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is it, and I I read a lot of Amartya Sen's uh, work because he's he's a really interesting economist who actually was the first theorist who came up with the concept of missing women. And he actually says, well, there are some patriarchal traditions that are stronger in some places than others. And he himself is not 100% sure what is it. And he's been thinking about it for a long time, and he knows Indian context so much better than, than I do. And it's just, it's fascinating. And there are also, um, I recently read a, an article which claimed that in some places in India, girls um, who are born are actually, a lot of them are doing quite well because the authors claim that these are the daughters that were actually wanted. However, I've, I have an issue with the argument, and I came across this quite often, in, mainly in Western contemporary bioethics that it somehow benefits women when when there's fewer of them because I doubt that we would say it about any other group of people who are were subjected to you know let's say genocide we would never say about anyone that you know any group of people that it's good for them when there's fewer of them imagine saying that about Jews for example one would never say that so I don't think that it's actually good to say this about women it's it's not justified to make claim that women benefit when there's fewer of them it's 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 a kind of argument that reduces women to property and objectifies women and it's it's a really problematic argument and i keep coming across it and in con- contemporary bioethics and i find it quite shocking yeah well it is i mean the whole the whole situation is quite shocking really that it has it has to sort of get to that stage where there aren't very many women for people to realize that women can actually access higher education and can do well at things that male children have been doing well at for years as as well i mean it it sort of has to go to those lengths to bring it to people's attention and another another topic that a lot of people don't even think about, especially in in the countries you've mentioned, China and India, are about lesbian and gay people. I mean, uh, there's a lot of lesbian and gay people who are being forced into heterosexual marriages. And you could imagine how horrible that would be. I think that it is still illegal to be gay in China, if, if I'm right, I think that the law still hasn't changed. So basically, that puts another pressure on men to actually find eligible wives, even men who are gay. And that's, you're right, that's another issue. But I just, I just remembered there is one really good example of how a country dealt with problem with sex selection, and that's, that's South Korea. South Korea had a significantly skewed sex ratio at birth, but actually introduced a whole range of policies, mainly socioeconomic policies. So basically, women got real opportunities to join the workforce and get education. And within a couple of years, South Korea actually 
totally reduce that kind of high skewed imbalanced ratio at birth. And it's a really great example how socioeconomic reforms can challenge um, gender stereotypes and a kind of culture where women have limited opportunities and, you know, which motivates parents to select for sons. So when women actually get real opportunities, we can change the situation. We can we stop, you know, discrimination and we can stop sex selection. So well, what lengths do people go to to have a baby of a particular sex? Well, some some go to quite great lengths. I guess the if you are wealthy and if you have a strong uh, preference, then you can engage in reproductive tourism and you can go abroad. A lot of parents go to the US or Thailand or Cyprus and undertake um, sex selection there. Now, in the US, sex selection costs around $15,000 at Dr. Potter's clinic, which is without medication. So realistically, the cost is around 22000 American dollars, and that's just one IVF cycle. Pregnancies quite often do not occur after one cycle, so um, some women uh, have to undergo IVF repeatedly, so that increases the price. Then you need to add money on travel and accommodation. So it's it's fairly, fairly expensive, and some people go into these lengths. I interviewed a woman who spent 120,000 American dollars on, on sex selection, and her IVF wasn't successful, so she didn't she still didn't have the child that she she um, desired. Now, I guess what what this implies is that some parents are quite uh, invested into this kind of pursuit, and I guess that it might it opens a lot of issues regarding harm to children because if if you go into such lengths. And if you desire a child so strongly that you want to invest so much money into having them, and also considering the fact that the clinics are feeding into this kind of pursuit, they they do not tell uh, parents that sex is something else than gender. They basically, when you, when you look at some of these clinics, when you look at their websites, they basically make promises and tell you that sex selection is 100% reliable and you will be getting a child of the gender that you desire. And that is a very problematic claim because what kind of identity that child will have is really not determined by their chromosomal sex, not unambiguously. So when all these things combine, the kind of strong desire and um, the length and the promises. I really wonder what happens to children who are born um, out of sex selection and who do not fulfill their parents' expectations. So they may not have the traits that, you know, their parents were selecting them for. They may not even identify with the preferred gender. They may have 
intersex variations. Now, what will happen to these children? Well, I think that they might be subjected to parents' um, parental disappointment, and some might be subjected to more pressure to adjust to stereotypical gender roles. And I know that a lot of liberal thinkers argue that, uh, you know, oh, well, every parent has some kind of assumptions. They all have expectations, and then they just love any child. But if parents love any child, why would they select in the first place? These parents don't just have assumptions. They don't just, you know, make assumptions. They act on gender stereotypes. They are actively trying to control the outcome, and they're actively trying to shape the child that they will have. And I think that, you know, there's a difference between having assumptions, making assumptions, and acting on them. And I think that there's a real risk of harm involved in, in sex selection. Yes, there certainly would be. Now, some people have put forth arguments of family balancing. What is family balancing? Well, family balancing is... Well, the concept of a balanced family is based on an assumption that a family is gender diverse if it involves children of two sexes and two genders. Parents assume that they will have a balanced family if they have boys and girls and they're trying to, they're having sex selection to make sure that they have children of both genders. Now, interestingly, the concept of a balanced family is also um, claimed to be really unproblematic because it promotes gender diversity. But when when you actually think about it, the whole concept is based on an assumption that children come in two genders and they're essentially different and they have essentially different traits. Um, and that's why you need children of two sexes because they will be really different and they will offer you different parental experiences. And I think that that's a very, again, a really narrow and limiting view on children because it's a very gender stereotypical view on children. We assume that these children will adjust to two types of gender roles. And that is not actually diversity. That's just binary uniformity. Diversity happens when children are let free to pursue any kind of hobbies or, you know, character traits freely and without this kind of either or. I think that as insofar as family balancing is based on gender stereotypes, it's it's um, a sexist practice. Another argument put forth is reproductive autonomy. Could you explain a little mm-hmm. bit about this term? Yes, so the argument from reproductive autonomy um, maintains that parents should have the right to select the sex of their children because based on their reproductive autonomy. Now, I think that reproductive autonomy is not the only um, thing at stake. The other things are a child's autonomy and their well-being. And I think that sex selection limits 
children, and it's a it, it's based on gender stereotypes, and gender stereotypes harm children because they limit their future autonomy. Um, children may not be as free to develop autonomous gender identities or sexual identities, um, and that can reduce their well-being. And I think that the harm in it is significant enough to actually justify regulation of reproductive autonomy. I think that I definitely believe that women should have the autonomy to make decisions whether they want to have children or not. But I don't think that we are entitled to making or deciding what type of children we will have, and certainly not for social reasons. No, that's right. It's, it's particularly uh, send, sends a message to the to the child that that they weren't wanted. It's particularly, I think, when people have uh, tests for children with certain disabilities, and then the child does have a disability, mm-hmm. you, you pretty well know that um, you know that you weren't wanted, and if the testing was available, that, that your parents wouldn't have had you. So it's not a very good start to life, whether you know, you're carrying the wrong chromosomes for alleged you know, sex chromosomes, or you have a disability as well. So what, what is the reducing diversity argument? Well, it, it relates to, the, to arguments about family balancing, because advocates of family balancing often um, argue that Family balancing is desirable because it promotes gender diversity in the family. And it is argued that a family is gender diverse if it includes children of two sexes. But as I was saying, this idea um, of the whole concept of a balanced family is based on an assumption that there are two types of children, boys and girls, and these two types of children are very, very different and they offer different experiences and that's not that's not gender diversity gender diversity is achieved when children are free to adopt identities behaviors and hobbies in in gender unspecific way in non-conformist ways when when they can be individuals a lot of some some theories also argue that um, families where children have a chance to develop their interests freely then you know children of the nominally same gender might end up expressing as much gender diversity as children of the traditionally understood opposite genders. And I think that, again, at this day and age, we should let children be free and pursue any kind of hobbies based on what they like and what they want to do, not based on on some limiting gender stereotypes. So what type of harm do you think that gender stereotyping does to children? Well, I definitely think that gender stereotyping is harmful to children, and it's because it limits children's possibilities. It limits their aspirations. So if we hold that only girls are good to do this and boys are only good to do that, we are offering a very limiting pool of opportunities to choose from you know when when we for example this is radical philosophy so if we teach philosophy in a way that suggests that only 
men are good philosophers. We are sending out a message that women should not pursue it or, you know, women will only be some kind of inferior kind of philosophers. And that is how stereotyping harms people and it harms both men and women because I interviewed several women who selected their child sex in Australia. I mean, they they were Australian, but they went abroad. And all these women selected in favor of daughters because they assumed that they cannot have a close relationship with a son. So they assumed that they need to have a female child um, in order to have a good and close relationship with their kid. Now, when you think about it, Think about all the possibilities and relationships these sons might be deprived of. All these women were selecting for the so-called family balancing purposes. So they already had between two to six sons, and they decided to undertake sex selection because they wanted that one child that they could have a close relationship with. Now, what about these existing sons? You know, what if what if they want to have um, close relationships with, with their parents or people around them? What kind of assumptions are we making about these kids? And also, it seems like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if one assumes that they will not have a close relationship with a child, they may not seek it, and then they will certainly not have it. And that's, again, that's a very limiting uh, view on children. And it's, it was interesting that the women I, I spoke with, they, their sons were quite little. They were six months to two years old, most, most of these um, children. Some of them are older. But it seems that in most cases, this assumption was based on preconceived assumptions about masculinity not real-life experiences with male children. So these women assumed that they cannot have a close relationship with a son, but they actually never gave it a go. And they were already actively selecting for a daughter instead of actually trying to have a close relationship with their sons. And that's, that's I think, where we can clearly see how sex selection can harm children because we deprive them of certain possibilities. And we make a lot of narrow-minded assumptions about them which are not necessarily based on, in, in, on reality or any kind of real-life experience. No, that is. It's, yes, it's quite a sad situation when you think about it. Well, thanks for coming on to the program today. Thank you for having me. And I've been speaking to Dr. Teresa Hindle about gender selection. I'm Kathy Weiss, and this is Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. Well, that's all we have time for today. I hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought.
but is it? I don't know. Do you reckon it is? 